0: Welcome to Om Times TV, a division of Om Times Media and Broadcasting. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, The No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of The No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer.
1: Hello and welcome. When the former chair of psychiatry at the University of Missouri-Columbia Medical School reveals that one of the 10 best spiritual books that influenced him the most on his life journey was a book about the tarot of the Egyptians by occultist, writer, mountaineer, philosopher, poet and mystic Alistair Crowley, you can be certain of two things. One this man is not your average psychiatrist. And two, there has to be a lot more to this story. We'll find out a bit later. Bernard Whiteman, MD, is the first psychiatrist since Carl Jung to systematise the study of coincidences. A graduate of Yale Medical School, he did his psychiatric residency at Stanford University and, as I said earlier, was the chair of psychiatry at, of the University of Missouri Columbia Medical School for 17 years. He writes a regular blog for Psychology Today on Coincidences, is the founder of the Coincidence Project, and the author and co author of several publications on psychotherapy and coincidences, including his latest work, Meaningful Coincidences How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. Dr. Bernard Bikeman, welcome. Thanks,
2: Sandy. I love the way you say my title and the (laughs) contraposition of Alistair and Chairman of Psychiatry is a very good statement about me. So you got it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I got it. I got it as soon as I read that about you. Yeah, I got you. (laughs) Um, So you are probably one of the very few guests who claims that their lists were easy to construct. Why is that?
2: The, um, the, guess that is what I'm sorry.
1: The, their ten best list is yeah. easy to construct,
2: and it it wasn't that easy for me. Oh, I thought it
1: was easy. You said. Yeah. In- well, I may have
2: said it, but it, it was grueling to do it because I haven't had to write essays in quite a long time. But picking the books wasn't too hard. Ah, but but right. the teacher demanded uh, some pretty good content. So I had to think <laughs> and I had to write. No, it was, it, was it, was, it was challenging to do it. And, uh, and yeah, as most of your guests tell you, uh, it was very instructive to do it. But more importantly, I want to see what we talk about because these books were very important to me. And I want to see where you help take us, the audience, uh, uh, with what you see and what your experience is.
1: Well, some of these books, I'm ashamed to say I have not read, although I have read the first one, Alice in Wonderland. I hope <laughs> many, so. many, many, years ago and Through the Looking Glass, um, both, of course, by author, poet and mathematician Charles Dodgson, otherwise known as Lewis Carroll. Otherwise, um, yes. And, and usually... You know, this is the show where I get to rest my voice and make the guests do all the talking. <laughs> That's why it's so much fun for me, because I don't have to work hard. Um, you know, because what I'm interested in is what you got out of that book and how how it's on that 10 best list and what impact it had on you.
2: A lot. Um, I read it, of course, a long time ago, but then I've reread it a couple of times more recently. Uh, And part of it, part of my attraction to it is uh, the Jabberwocky. Uh, I've I've memorized uh, the poem and uh, put it to a tune that I like to be able to sing. And I hope on New Year's I'm going to get a friend of mine and his band to back me up on singing the Jabberwock because it's such a fun play on words uh and 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 it is it is lewis carroll's take on um beowulf it's the adventurer going out into the world and but it's such a fun one uh and it's so much pleasure and i'll just do the first verse just to just to um
1: set the energy (laughs)
2: yeah so here it goes T'was brillig and the slithy toes Did gyre and gimble in the wabe All mimsy were the boar groves And the momrez outgrabe now, he, Those were words we kind of know and what was beautiful about it he could make up new words and you could understand what they meant uh, The momrez, some kind of animal uh, rat, mom, mouse were out there running around and they grabbed something And you could feel you could feel the Vorpal his Vorpal sword went snicker snack and he left its head and with he left it dead and with its head he went galumphing. What a what a nice word galumphing is. And then chortle, Uh, the old man seeing the boy coming back with the prize, chortled in his joy. So I love wordplay. Mm-hmm. And there's no better player on words than Lewis Carroll, particularly in that poem. So it drew me in 11th grade. That's where I memorized it. I just just loved it then, and it still resonates with me now. So it made me uh, able to make up words, like I could call you, Sandy, a coincider. I made it up that term. Uh, somebody who experiences lots of coincidences as a coincider. And my my website is coincider.com, C O I N C I D E R. But if you look at the word coincider and listen to what it sounds like, it's not just the way I spelled it, but the way it sounds. It sounds like somebody who's inside with you, a co insider. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of get a look inside of the coincidence business by being a coincider. It's a double meaning of the word. So it's part of the inspiration. But look at, look at what we've done, us human beings, to Alice. Uh, you, you may be fam- familiar with uh, um, the Jefferson Airplane song, uh, Go Ask Alice, I Think yes. She'll Know. I mean, if you listen to Grace Slick talking about Alice, one pill makes you taller, the other makes you smaller. You got into taking drugs very early that taking drugs was okay. And I kind of <clears throat> was around them the, uh, in, in San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s, because <coughs> I was wandering around on Hate Street in those days, as well as being a psychiatric resident part-time. So that that illustrates what you were talking about, with about me with Aleister Crowley and and also being a psychiatrist. So I was a halftime resident at Stanford in my own way and a halftime on Haight Street for a, a year or two. So I got to get close to some of those people every people knew uh grace slick and i didn't know directly so we were close to that experience and grace slick made it clear when she talks about it that we were influenced to take drugs from uh lewis carroll and uh go ask alice but even worse than that or better or whatever you want to think about it how often people talk about going down the rabbit hole well, they went down the rabbit hole. Well, yeah. I don't want to go down. Well, Alice, so the story goes, was bored. <laughs> and Lewis Carroll had to make up some stories for these three girls uh, as they were punting on a river in England. And for Alice, he made up a story. We really liked Alice the best and made up a story about a rabbit who was late for a very important date. And Alice went down the rabbit hole with the rabbit. But look at the fun she had. Going down a rabbit hole can be a good thing, can be a lot of fun. So they've distorted the use of rabbit hole by making it to be kind of a spirally, whirly thing that's that really gets you in trouble.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that he was, uh, you know, uh, the father of Dr. Seuss? <laughs>
2: That's a good connection. I don't know, uh, but we build on the on the on the abilities of other people, and yeah. directly or not. One of my favorite ideas is um, simultaneous independent discoveries. Uh, ideas are floating around in the psychosphere, our mental atmosphere. I call it, uh, and ideas get picked up, but they're also picked up over time and they develop. So Dr. Seuss played with words. Uh, There wasn't a rabbit hole. There wasn't your old father William. There wasn't like the fantasy that attracted me and Alice. So Dr. Seuss and I were not the best of friends.
1: So uh, you love the Jabberwocky best. Yes. As a psychiatrist, reading that book. That line start off as a
2: psychiatrist. (laughs) uh, My ears perk up. Okay, a rabbit like. Go ahead. As a psychiatrist, yes.
1: Yeah, reading that book much later. Um, as a grown up, did you kind of have different ideas?
2: Yeah, 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 I mean, yes and of, of course I did and it was more um, how Lewis Carroll or or Dodgson wrote it and that he was a mathematician as you so well know and he was like a, he lived by himself but he had a lot of kids that were relatives that he hung around with and he came up with this, that to Alice in Wonderland, okay, that was one, but Through the Looking Glass, was a chess game, um, was based on a chess game and all the moves in the chess game. And I couldn't follow that. I mean, I, I could just respect his ability to think of the movements with the king and the queen and Alice a pawn in the middle of it all, I guess. But I like the stories. I like the wal. I like the walrus and the carpenter. I like the play in there. I didn't like the queen. She was nasty. And I, when I read it the first time, I didn't like her. The second time, I didn't like her. I just liked the play that he had. The walrus and the carpenter. Yeah, they were eating the oysters, but it was still funny way we we're doing it. And and your old father William. I that reading that over again. I I used to say your old father William is kind of like. You're old, but your old father William could do so much as an old guy, which is is so inspiring to be able to think that way.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to find this book amongst uh, uh, your list. Um, Do you think that it's Alice's fault that you started taking drugs?
2: (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, it's my own curiosity and a set of coincidences where I was in Los Angeles in 1965. And somebody said, you want a mystical experience? And I said, sure. I, I read about that in college, in philosophy. And that was, that was the first time. I never heard of LSD except once in a Look magazine, a Life magazine article. So yeah. So I took LSD and I saw energy between my hands, energy between my hands. So I saw, I know that human energy, interpersonal and personal energy exists, because I saw it. And that was the beginning of recognizing there's more to this reality than than we know, than we're told.
1: Mm. Well, we'll talk about how that connects to coincidences a little bit later. Let's move on to your second oh, okay. book.
2: Okay, we'll do that later.
1: Which is um, long considered one of the greatest books about the history of the hippies. The Electric Cool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. Which was published in 1968. Tell us about your encounter with that book and how it impacted you.
2: Well, keep in mind that in 65, I came I came back to Yale Medical School, having taken LSD a couple of times, and and seen things that were quite interesting and amazing. Um, so I went to uh, a um, a a guy on the faculty who was new. Um, and told him that I had had these uh, experiences, and he connects me up with somebody in Boston at Harvard, where he had come from, named Walter Pankey, who did the first controlled study with psilocybin and mystical experience in the Good, in the Good Friday exper- experiment in 1961. So I walk into Pankey's office um, uh, as a, after my and my second year. Summer at Yale, and well, and walk into his office at uh, Harvard uh, uh, Mental Health Center, uh, and um, I tell him I took some LSD in LA, and he says you're the first one, and by that he meant the first medical student who showed up in his office with this kind of experience. So I needed to write a dissert a thesis for Yale, so I did it on expectation and experience with using data he had, he and his group had. Collected, so expectation does influence experience, as you might know. And I just need to put some data about that, which I did. So that that was a second experience with psychedelics, and somehow I heard about um, Tom Wolfe writing articles in the New York Herald Tribune about what was going on in San Francisco. They formed the basis of the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. But I would walk over uh, during my third year over, I guess it was then, over to the Yale Library and read the New York Herald Tribune, the next issue of uh, of his articles about what was going on in San Francisco. So, I thought, OK, well, I want to know what's going on there because I want to go there. I want to see what's happening. So Tom Wolfe and the acid kool electric kool acid test told me more about what was going to happen uh, as did the person who gave me the lsd in california in San, in los angeles she introduced me to Aleister crowley so through alistair crowley and his tarot cards i learned about astrology and i learned uh, i learned about mystical experiences and i learned about tarot cards and i got to for the for a jewish boy from wilmington delaware i got introduced to the kabbalah for the first time because they didn't tell me about that in hebrew school so i studied the kabbalah by looking at alistair crowley's card deck the book of thoth that was xerox copy before the book the book of thoth had gotten published as a book and so i I was in a basement in berkeley um, in the hills, and was studying these cards and looking at the interrelationship between symbols, symbols, numbers, uh, Hebrew letters, and trying to see how they related to each other. So it stretched my mind to be able to think about things as much more interrelated than they were. And I had a, I had a deck of those tarot cards in a little holster uh, on my belt that I pull out and um, and do readings on, and all that got set up by hearing about uh what was going on in San Francisco with uh, the merry pranksters riding around in a book, in a in a bus, um, just doing weird stuff and being crazy, which is kind of like what I ran into when I hit San Francisco. So it was all very familiar to me with uh Alistair Crowley's book and acid electro electrocoolate acid test. All, it was all familiar to me. So when I hit the streets on Hate Street, I knew how to speak the language. I was part of the culture. I could understand what they were, to, what they were searching for, what they were, tr- what they were doing, what they were experiencing.
1: So, did you participate frequently? Did I what? That's participate a, frequently.
2: Participate in anything in particular? <laughs> are you referring to LSD? LSD. Um, I took LSD maybe twenty times. Um, and the last time was kind of boring. Uh, It so much depends on where you are. Uh, What I learned, though, was to be able to use marijuana as a way of understanding and expanding my understanding of reality because that's what the LSD did. And having taken LSD before I smoked marijuana made my first marijuana experience more psychedelic than it might have been, and it still is. It's, it's a way of expanding the my feel for how reality works, which I am very, very curious about, and that's more like the way I'm doing things, not with psychedelics now so much.
1: So how does um I'm going to digress a little here. how does uh, your your experiences how do those experiences inform your work as a psychiatrist?
2: Well, they informed my work on coincidences. Because on Hate Street, I think there was a sign. I'm pretty sure there was a sign that said "Synchronicity Spoken Here." Uh, and there were so many coincidences happening on Hate Street that I, I, had in the in the frame of mind that it was was back then. I had to, and the phraseology, I had to stop myself from being blown out by all these coincidences. There were so many of them. So that informed my coincidence experience, but as a psychiatrist, um, all this stuff also fed into my understanding of psychotherapy. Uh, as you mentioned, I've written a couple of books on psychotherapy that have gotten some national psychiatric awards. So I've learned a lot about psychotherapy. And I think those experiences um, on Haight Street and San Francisco really helped me do what I did, which was to not be in any school of psychotherapy, cognitive therapy, psychodynamic therapy, gestalt therapy, existential psychotherapy. My my drive with all this is to get to the underlying nature of reality. I want to know what's going on around here. So when I when I got to be able to have a mindset that allowed me to do that kind of investigation, I went to what's the fundamental thing in cognitive therapy, psychodynamic therapy. The fundamental thing is the noun, psychotherapy. So I said, what's psychotherapy? Psychotherapy is a a process that can be divided into stages over time. So, the book was based on the four stages of psychotherapy and some substages. That was able to help, enabled me to get beyond the illusion of these, all these different schools and get to what was fundamental to all of them.
1: Hmm. Okay. I'm sure we'll continue this thread. Well, let's, let's come
2: let's, back let, to it. Let's, let's continue the thread in a different way and then we'll go back and see where you want to go. But if you take psychoactive drugs under the right conditions, you begin to wonder about the relationship between mind and brain. Conventional science thinks that brain gives rise to mind. But there's some truth in that somewhere but there's my, our minds are much more expansive or potentially expansive than what we're taught. So the neurochemistry and the neural correlates of consciousness expansion became an interesting thing for me, but I couldn't just stay with the brain, although I loved studying the brain. So that's another result of those experiences.
1: Mm. Well, of course, many um, uh, quantum physicists talk about the non-locality of the mind, that it isn't in the body, the memories aren't in the body, um, that it is the sec- in the second self, according to Amit Goswami, his theory of uh, the two selves theory, others that it's out there, you know, joined with everyone else's. Um, but let's come back to that in a minute because I really do want to make sure we get all 10 books mentioned I want to move on to book three, because this is another interesting one, Flatland. This has come up a few times. Um, a Romance of Many Dimensions by English clergyman, educator and Shakespearean scholar, Edward Abbott. Abbott, Who would call them their children? <laughs> a name that is the same as their last name. Who knows? Anyway, tell us about this book. How did it come into your life? What attracted you to it?
2: Andrew Weil, uh, who's who is an integrative uh, medicine guy, quite well known for it. Yeah. Um, and I were interns together in San Francisco uh, and we, we stay in contact. I visited him in twenty nineteen and he was he, he gave me a couple of books uh, and one of them was Flatland. And it, it's a very small book and it's kind of hard to read parts of it. I've tried to read. Uh, Some of it, but uh, again, but the really key parts of it have to do with this this a sphere. Well, we got to say what flatland is first. Flatland's a a land that's made up of of, of two dimensional geometric figures, triangles, squares, and the highest form is a circle. They're the they're the ones that rule the place. But they're also guys hanging around like lines. And points, and the point thinks he's everywhere because he's no place, but he's everywhere. Uh, and those are funny ideas. But the the key thing in that book was uh, that one of the people in Flatland noticed this dot that kept getting it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then got smaller and smaller and smaller, and became a dot and disappeared. Uh, Coming in the in the in the flat of Flatland, and so that person had to say, "I think there is something else going on around here, and that something else is that there's another dimension, and that's where we are. That there's a we live in this three, probably best say fourth dimension, and there there's some other dimensions of which we are part. So that was a mind expander for anybody." Who wants to pay attention to it? It was a hint about what might be going on around here.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think you wrote uh, in your description, perhaps meaningful coincidences are like the sphere for some of us. Some of them are fourth dimensional objects passing through our three dimensions, or more accurately, when we include time as part of our dimension, some synchronicities are like the sphere passing through a fourth dimension from the fifth dimension. Not sure I can get my head around that without having to really think about it.
2: Co- coincidences are, have been a way for humanity to figure out how things work. Some of them uh, are not particularly useful. Some of them are just random fun things that are like a lot of fun. I mean, coincidences. You read something, you hear it from somebody else. It's kind of fun. Sometimes it, it encourages you to think about what you just uh, saw as a paired thing. But there's much more going on here. And there's a web of coincidences that if you pay attention to them, uh, you might be part of. And this web is three-dimensional if you pay attention because it, it happens over time. And this three-dimensional web is emerging into our four-dimensional place from some other kinds of ways of thinking about reality. And that's as best as I can tell you by what I was trying to say there.
1: Mm. Okay. I shall think on it. Number four, Childhood's End, Arthur C. Clarke, published in 1953. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Humanity Arth-
1: self-destructing? <laughs> Familiar?
2: Familiar. Well, this was, Arthur, D, Arthur C. Clarke is a very famous science fiction writer and, and um, consulted with NASA about uh, space travel because he, he had enough imagination that they knew he might be onto something. He uh, had a good mechanical sense. This book was different from most of all of his other books because he got more metaphysical Uh, in it. Humanity was destroying itself and didn't know what to and didn't know where it was going to go. But things were getting bad until. An intercession by a being from someplace else. And the reason the being didn't show himself until after humanity might be ready was because the being looked like the devil. It was all red with a tail and pointy ears and stuff. So people weren't particularly scared by then as he was able to show his control and took over uh, calming people down. But the, the funny thing about that was that as humanity got less uh, pugilistic with each other, it got boring. It got boring. They didn't. They had parties and there was a party in Australia Uh, in a house where somebody from another planet, another dimension, was looking around in the library uh, for like parapsychological information because these guys were like very rational, these visitors, and they wanted to know what this parapsychological thing was. And there's some weird things happened after that, and that's where I lost the book when I was reading it again. And then I found it and I got to go back to it. But there's some correlations and coincidences that were a little difficult for people to take once they noticed them. But the key thing for me was toward the end. When after one of these parties, and this was in Australia, after one of these parties, people were wondering where all the children were. And what they were noticing is that the children all seemed to disappear around the same time, after the party, other times, and then come back. And they didn't know what the children were doing. And this still thrills me to remember what they were doing. They were in the forest. I love trees. They were in the forest. They were communicating with each other telepathically more and more because we need to be able to recognize our telepathic capacities words are so limited and i'd rather have pictures and words and the words can supplement the visual images we can send to other people it's a lot easier to to communicate in the pictures and it's going on in the internet obviously and social media more visual and i think that's setting us up to become more telepathically visual with each other you're nodding how come you're nodding there
1: I I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I think. You know, it's one of the good things about the internet. It's getting us ready.
2: Getting us ready, and I think technology has been doing that all along. Is th- there's a psycho there's a techno mimicry thing where the technology mimics our potential, and sometimes the technology then can reflect back to the potential that we have yet to realize. Okay, well, I'm glad you know that. That's because I hope more people do. Because then we can harness technology because we got a big bad bogeyman with us, a technology too. And they yes. have to, it, it has to be harnessed in a positive way. And it's one of the things that I'm trying to be able to figure out how to be able to do. Mm, yeah. Well, the, the kids in this forest, just to finish that part of it, were communicating with each other telepathically. And then one day, they all gathered in an open space, held hands with each other, made a circle, danced around in the circle, and spun off into space. And the book ended. And I, I just loved that.
0: Mm.
1: Yes, yeah, I think that's very meaningful. <laughs> You know, I'm trying to teach my grandson T-mail, not email, T-mail, telepathy mail. Good. So when we walk the dog and the dog is picking up his P-mail, <laughs> we're practicing T-mail with one another. And how, do you... he, how do we do it? I, yeah. I ask him, I tell him that I'm thinking of a color, you know, and he's got to tune in and, or I'm thinking of a shape or, you know, start off with small things. Um, and every time we get a hit completely spontaneously when we're not on a walk, I always remind him, that's your power of email. And we'll what? all be developing it soon. And, and I'll be so happy because then all of the, you know, junk email hopefully will disappear and we'll have our filters up and just get what we need to get.
2: I, I think you're missing something. Uh, we're still going to have junk thoughts too or junk images
1: well yes and, yes but and we've got to of, learn
2: yes we have to learn to manage what goes on and what appears yes. to be in our minds
1: yes and is that my thought or is that somebody else's? got to learn discernment
2: wonderful word discernment yeah. yep
1: Yeah. Okay. So we've really kind of touched on book five, which is the book of Thoth by Alistair Crowley. Is there anything else you want to say about that before we go to a break?
2: It's been one of the most educational books that I've ever had. Uh, And I I had copies of it when it first came out and I lost the stuff I'd underlined with which I saw it. And then it's just, uh, it's hard to read. I'm really glad I did the visuals first and the symbols first. So I got a feel for the cards. When you have to read about it, you don't get it. You have to experience these cards. You have to be in there with them uh, and see what they have in them because there's much more than the words he's written uh, in them. And that's the best I can say. It's been a window onto reality and expanding my sense of what's going on around here.
1: Have you gone back to read it?
2: I just picked up the cards. I'd laid out um, some cards a couple of months ago, what my future looked like before I started doing these 50 or 60 podcasts for my book. And uh, just to see what's happening, um, if I can get some idea about it. And uh, the the future one, the one in the future was the tower. um, And the tower is blowing everything up uh, and starting again. And I don't want to blow everything up physically. I want to blow up uh, constructs and let people be open to what they can find intuitively with a rational bent to their intuition. Hmm.
1: Good. Okay. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few moments, so do stay tuned.
0: Ohm Times TV.
1: Maya Angelou once said that there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, and when I'm not hosting OmTams Media's flagship radio show, What Is Going On, and the No BS Spiritual Book Club, I help people share their untold stories. Books are my life, my joy, and my passion, and there is no greater reward than helping aspiring writers get their books out of their heads and into the hands of those who are waiting to read them. If you feel that you have a book in you, but don't know where to begin, visit sedgbeer.com. Click on the Work With Me tab and find out how my experience helping others tell their stories might be just what you've been looking for. That's sedgbeer.com. S-E-D-G-B-E-E-R.com.
0: Imagine becoming a super influencer. Reinvent yourself. Invest in your brand and then manifest your success with a robust, spheric approach. OWN Times Media and Broadcasting offers a unique and multifaceted way to become the spiritual and conscious influencer you deserve to be by putting your message across our powerful platform with its proven record of integrity and excellence. Through our produced shows, Om Times offers the opportunity to become a social media TV personality, a radio show host, an Om Times Magazine columnist, and a syndicated podcaster, all in one shot. By live streaming your show on Om Times TV and broadcasting it across the extensive Om Times radio and TV networks, you become more than a host. You become an ambassador and a force for positive change. Home Times, open yourself to the possibilities.
1: There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from, yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and
0: families in need. Visit FeedingAmerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're feeding America.
1: Welcome back. Dr. Okay. Bernard Breitman, book number six. Here we are with um, Amit Goswami's Two-Selves Theory. Uh, the book is The Observing Self by fellow psychiatrist Arthur Dykman.
2: I'd been um, trying to write about, as when I was writing about psychotherapy, about uh, what I call, now call a self observer. This was called the observing self. And I hadn't been able to find anybody who'd written about it directly. Uh, psychoanalysts called it the uh, observing ego, but they didn't study it. They didn't write about that much. It's like it's just watching, but they don't pay attention to it too much. But it's fundamental to our understanding of our own realities is is looking at what we're thinking about. And when you talk about doing telepathy with your grandson, you're talking about observing what's going on in your mind. You have to be observing it, and then holding it. And observing self helps with that, or the self observer helps with that, and then holds it strongly enough for your grandson to possibly hear it. Observing self or self-observer is crucial in psychotherapy. If you're my patient, what I try to do is establish a um, self-observer alliance between your self-observer and my self-observer so that the two of them are connected with each other. These two are connected with each other. And then I can use my questions to tap into your self-observer so that you then look down in your mind and tell me what's going on in there. And there are times when I can bridge the gap myself and make a guess about what's going on in your mind by the connection that we establish. Arthur Dyckman helped me clarify that Uh, the one of the key lines in there was a about a a group of uh, 13 pilgrims crossing a river and they got across the river and the leader could only count 12 people well that's because he left himself out and we don't we leave our observing self or self-observer out when we look at our own minds we say the mind, the, da, 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 the thoughts and emotions and stuff like that. But the self observer, observing self, is key in meditation. When medita- med- meditators meditate, uh, they activate this self observer and try to be able to use it to not uh, to reduce uh, thoughts and quiet them down. So there's some information going from the self observer to the thought patterns, which is fundamental to being able to get some control and influence over what you think well a self-observer is uh, if to study the self-observer is to um, then recognize that there is a second observer that is the observer of the first observer the self-observer i just talked about so there's the second observer so i'm talking about the first observer uh, and that's the second observer describing the first observer but if i start talking about the second observer then there's a third observer that's looking at the second observer. Now, Buddhists, from I've gotten arguments with some Buddhists about this that there's only one observer, and then that observer through meditation melts in with uh, the oneness. I, okay, I mean this is a this is a duality world that we live in, so it's all it's all duality. I mean, so why not both of them? Because there's a lot of both ends and a lot of stuff. So yeah, that you can do that. But I don't like to do that because I don't want to get lost in what I call spiritual bypassing. Not just I do, but other people do. There's so much professional spiritual bypassing going on now where people are developing their spiritual connection with the one. Yeah, you can do that. It's there. It is all one. But we have a problem right here on earth, ladies and gentlemen. We got a problem. We got to do something about it together. And I would like to activate the observing self of the collective human organism to observe what's going on and begin to develop some psychotherapy for the collective human organism, which is currently destroying its own nest.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there are many, many people working at exactly that.
2: Yeah. I don't know how many recognize the need for a collective human organism recognition. Do you?
1: I don't know how many, but I, I know some. that fortunately I get to speak to some of them because that's, you know, my area of interest and the kinds of uh, interviews I like to do like Irvin Leslo and Amit Goswami and Jude Caravan and people like that.
2: Yeah. I've got, maybe later you can tell me how to contact them. Um, Because I have a a podcast too, and it's about meaningful coincidences. Um, So I would like to be able to do that. I've gotten a couple of people, um, uh, Daniel Siegel, uh, who's a psychiatrist.
1: Dan Siegel, yeah.
2: Has he been on your show too?
1: Not on this show. I have interviewed him in the past, but not on this show.
2: Well, he's got a new book called Intra Connected, and it's about – ways in which we are connected with each other, but he doesn't like connection because it, it suggests there are things that are separate. He wants it to be all one, uh, I, we. Uh, so he plays around with that. And an, another, uh, uh, a guy who is a retired religion professor at Youngstown State University, uh, who, who has taken LSD about 73 times, and he explored human consciousness way out there. And he and Dan and I had a conversation about what we might do to help conceptualize a recognition of our interrelationship with each other. And I want to get more people doing that, uh, that are trying to do that. Laszlo is obviously one very strong component of this movement so that we can get people together who are trying to understand visually and getting back to that and emotionally what we need to construct as a human species to be able to survive on this planet because we can have a lot of fun here we don't have to keep killing animals this is i don't want to get away from here yeah we can we know that you can be a spirit someplace up there you can do that you can have life after death we have pretty good ideas about that but it's right here where the fun is. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, let's have a conversation away from the show because I think there's quite a few people that I can um, introduce to you. Thank you. So let's move on to book number seven, which is Existential Psychotherapy by another Stanford University psychiatrist and a personal mentor of yours during your psychiatric residency at Stanford, uh, Irv Yellen.
2: In 1980, he had two books that were the best psychiatric books in the decade. In the decade, Um, Irv was uh, was just another guy teaching stuff. When I was a resident at Stanford, people liked him. He talked about group therapy, which I found boring. Uh, He got on the he got up the board once and wrote the word nowhere. N n o n o w h e r e. So then he broke up the the no and the where and you uh, and you got to now here mm. so he was illustrating what uh, a kind of universal thing that that so many things contain their opposite so now here and nowhere are quite related to each other and that that stuck with me he he was existential enough so that um, he brought the person who wrote man's search for meaning into stanford and he came to one of our talks, and was a nice Jewish old man who had a few things to say. Um, but his book, uh, "Man's Search for Meaning," is like one of the most popular books still about um, Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel about existence, yes, a concentration camp man who survived and thinking, feeling, knowing, being in touch with something more. Uh, helped Victor Frankel survive, and thinking about his wife and wanting to get back together with her was a big driver for him. But he came, so Irv was was pretty famous in the existential world enough to have Victor Frankel show up. But then he wrote this book, Existential Psychotherapy, and one of the things about Irv and his psychotherapy is that he encouraged us to be ourselves with our patients. Unlike psychoanalytic, uh, being behind a screen and kind of oh well maybe that's your mother that we are talking about here, um, no, maybe it's you we're talking about here, and you and me, and maybe if you get an existential meeting with another person, that's therapeutic. That helps, and it not only helps the patient, it helps the therapist. So uh, being in therapy is was the on- is the only way I can be and therapy without having to be the patient, although I have a therapist myself too. You learn from your patients because they're trying to help us be better. And Irv had a good sense for that. And this book, Existential Psychotherapy, went through four different existential concerns. Uh, the, the last one was Search for Meaning in Life, which he didn't do very well, I thought. But one of his key ones was decision-making, that to be responsible for yourself. that that he rang something he called the the can't bell, when people with therapists would say, I can't do it. But he would change it into the won't bell. And he made it clear how responsible each of us is for our outcomes in our life. And part of the trouble with a lot of synchronicity and spiritual bypass people is they say it's God, it's universe, and they don't recognize their own responsibility in that. And Irv picked up something really important there that I was surprised to see in the coincidence literature. That there's so much talking about asking the universe. Well, okay, it's good to ask. It helps. But you got to do something. Like the secret was like, lie there and think about a $1,000 bill and you'll get it. No, you've got to do something about it. So it's engagement in the world where you as a being have something to do with what happens, was a major, major thing that Er showed me. He wrote the preface for my first psychotherapy book. Uh, and he's just a wonderful guy. And I kind of keep in directly contact with him. Um, it's, he's, he's just an inspiring person.
1: Well, book number eight will be no surprise. It is Synchronicity by Carl Jung.
2: Well, what a surprise. Not a surprise. Well, the book was a surprise to me because I I was seeing all these coincidences starting when I was like eight or nine. And like when I was um, in elementary school and when I played football and baseball and in college in San Francisco on Haight Street, there was a lot of coincidences for me. So then somehow, I don't remember how, I got this little book called Synchronicity by Carl Jung. And it was hard to read because it's, it's pretty condensed. And Jung was afraid of what people would think about him by writing such craziness, but he was into this idea for quite a long time. So I, was, so I picked up on a critical Jungian idea. It was there before. I, I, one of my favorite ideas from coincidences is, is if you thought about it, somebody else has to, yeah. or will. Or is right now, there's a lot of evidence for that. So I was glad to find that, but some people think I'm a Jungian. I'm not a Jungian, I'm not uh, anything but myself, and I don't try to have other people be bitemanian, <laughs> which might be the case sometimes. might get little get a little get wild, <laughs> wild sometimes. I want you to be yourself because each of us is so unique in the way we understand. Our reality and the way we experience it, and we have similarities to other people. And when we do that, but I much prefer to be recognized as somebody who's following after Jung, not a follower of Jung. I come afterwards to try to be able to make more sense as a psychiatrist. Jung was a psychiatrist, make more sense out of the craziness that meaningful co- coincidence appears to be.
1: Hmm. Book number nine is a novel, The Portrait of a Mirror, by A. Natasha Joukowsky, published just last year, 2021. What was it about this book?
2: Well, Portrait of a Mirror. Uh, (laughs) It's all about narcissism. Hot topic. And, And... it's so gritty <laughs> and sharp and it's reflections and reflections on narcissism. I mean, there. those of you who have ever gone to a barbershop or a haircut place and you have mirror behind you and a mirror uh, in front of you and you see the infinite regress of the mirrors, that's where she was going. It's like we look for people who reflect who we are and they look for who, what we can reflect of them. Uh, she starts pretty much with, um, uh, the famous portrait of, uh, of narcissist, uh, of, of, nar- of narcissist, um, looking in to the pool, uh, and admiring himself. Now the, the trouble for our hero here was that, uh, If he left the pool, he left his beloved. So he was stuck having to be in a total continuing admiration for himself, but he didn't know it. Now, as Natasha shows us, we can walk around with a mirror of ourselves taking selfies, and we can look at ourselves all the time. And she has a two-year-old son or had a two, when his son was two years old. He just loved looking at his pictures of himself. I love myself or something is what he was talking about. The inherent need to see a reflection of ourselves is fundamental to human identity, much more than we think. And so popular now, as you're talking about narcissism is, is endemic. And we see that with uh, the ex-president of the United States most clearly in Donald Trump. But it's true of all those politicians, or most of them, is that they, they, they want to be adored. They want to see their adoration. They want to see themselves mirrored with adoring looks in the, in the minds of those around them. And Natasha told the story of uh, of the upper 1% in New York City in Manhattan, uh, people working at... Uh, That big uh, banks and like Goldman Sachs and making huge amounts of money and only trying to to be a reflection of themselves out there and see themselves reflected in what was out there. So it was. She's such a good writer. She's such a good writer, and I I I read the book and uh, got it by a little accident and uh, looked at looked her up and she said on her on her on her website she responds to all emails so i responded to her and it was so much fun talking with her because almost like lewis carroll in a different way she could she loved playing with words Mm -hmm. and i like playing with words with her and she was on my podcast and we had we had a really good time uh doing all that so i got to be able to meet the author as well as enjoy again a second reading of that book
0: Mm,
1: that's always uh, always fun when you can do that. It doesn't happen nearly often enough But well, you get to do it a lot i get yes, I do get to do it a lot, yeah, 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 but not necessarily all the people that I want to It's never perfect I'm sorry
2: to tell you that i mean it's it's a little it's about time you learn that one, okay yeah, I think maybe. Maybe, right.
1: <laughs> so the final book, number yeah. 10, which oh, is yeah. uh, a book that you <laughs> elicited from you around three laughs a page, you said, Vineland by Thomas Pynchon, published in 1990.
2: Have you read any Thomas Pynchon books? I have not. Well, you talk about a guy who plays with stuff, with words. Uh, He plays with words and TV uh, coming into the lives of the people involved. And he loves weird people. And there's a lot of weird people in this because I like weird people too. What drew me to it was it it was set. It started with uh, in 1980 in a fake town called Vineland, which was in a, uh, a, uh, a, st- a, part of San Fran- a part of California uh, that was uh, a county uh, that, was, that was north of San Francisco um, that was where the hippies went when we were driven out of San Francisco. And we were driven out by uh, meth freaks um, who were like, we like to say, chewing on telephone poles and heroin addicts that were trying to murder people. It got to be be really um, difficult being in the city. It got ugly. I ended up getting out by uh, coincidentally finding some guys to play rugby with um, and and moved out of the the hippie thing into the San Francisco dope lawyer experience and playing rugby for a bunch of years with this rugby team from San Francisco called the Bay Area Touring Side. So that was some more adventures for me. But I wondered what happened to my – my hippie colleagues in san francisco who all went north and this book was pretty good as a novel describing the kind of horrible things that the u.s government did to marijuana growers and anybody who looked a little different uh, in northern california it was really vicious what happened but that's the basic line and people get get with it but There was so many reminders of uh, the old days in San Francisco and the ways we were thinking about things that I just I just loved being part of that group again by by being by reading this. And one of of the things that was funny was he would make up names like uh, uh, there was a band called the Paranoids. Which I hadn't heard of. Uh, And in part one part of the book, there's there's a group of hippies going over to the Fillmore, which I had gone to. And they were going to listen to the Paranoids. Well, I went to the Fillmore in San Francisco before there was a Fillmore East and uh, on LSD with some friends of mine. And uh, hopefully some of our audience has heard of the Grateful Dead. Uh, they were a local band in San Francisco, and I went to see them a couple of times just as a local band. And they were playing at the Fillmore one day. And on acid, I was see- I walked in and I st- it almost like the same thing when I go into dance here in, sh- in Charlottesville. You walk in and there's a bunch of people dancing and to Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead And I look up, and there's a spotlight. There's a spotlight on Jerry Garcia. And I look, and it's on his hand. And to me, it looks like the hand of God strumming the rhythm for everybody dancing there. It was such a unified, resonating experience. So that was fundamental to some of my experiences there. And the book recaptured some of them the feeling of it the fun of it, the adventure of it, and also the, the down part of it uh, that I managed to escape pretty well. Hmm.
1: Interesting. <laughs> Jimmy Garcia and the Grateful Dead have cropped up a few times in interviews I've done recently.
2: Good, they should. Uh,
1: there's a synchronicity here. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, wow. You know, the best thing I've ever done is start this podcast, this show. The worst thing I've ever done is start this show because I thought I was well-read, but now my list of must-reads is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm too busy doing the show to read them, um, which is very frustrating for someone who loves books. Um, But, yeah, there's a good few of yours that will be added to that pile. So that brings us to the end of your 10 best list. Now, uh, we are we haven't got too long left, but I want to ask you a question. If I can find them here, I don't know if I've still got them. Um, we ask all of our contributors to give us some keywords about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the kind of the, give us a, an insight to the person behind the bio and tell us a few quirky things about you that only your loved ones would know. Do you remember what your keywords were because they've disappeared off my screen
2: well i want to talk
1: to you about a couple of them
2: i i will now look them up because uh uh, that's a good way to remember by reading them uh first one was uh mitch mr touchdown
1: yeah explain that
2: well i don't look like much of a football player but i was oh
1: okay i'm thinking of a spaceship (laughs)
2: <laughs> ah, very good. Thank you for that. Hey, I, I mean, I, I love that because these words mean yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a spaceship that that adds a lot. Thank you for that. Um, but I played football in high school and college and I mentioned rugby and I love making touchdowns and they called me Mr. Touchdown in high school. Um, so it's part of my identity.
1: Okay, another slight um, digression here, because you you love words. And, uh, of course, one of the key tenets of NLP is that the only meaning a communication has is the interpretation that the other person puts on it. So there you are with Touchdown, Mr. Touchdown, and I'm interpreting that completely according to, you know, me, my experience, my thoughts, nothing to do with the reality
2: well it, it's a it's both of us um but if we can get into a discussion about uh linguistics and meaning and that i think we could we could wind that around for a lot but uh, yeah, yeah, i think it's a very important point you're making
1: yeah yeah anyway m- what's the next one what's the next keyword
2: hippie hippie elder
1: okay oh i i think we understand that one move along
2: <laughs> yes uh uh Romantic dancer. Ah. I'll take romance. So that means slow dancing? That means it can be fast, too. I mean, it started from high school. That was romantic slow dancing. But uh, some some dance, you can really go fast. And um, also, there's a nice vibe between the two people. Dance has taught me more and more in depth about energy among and between people. And uh, I I like the romantic feeling that sometimes happens just on the dance floor and not play any place else, that it happens there. And it's like what stays in Las Vegas, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. What happens on the dance floor usually stays on the dance floor. It's just a it's a nice energetic up to be able to do that with some people.
1: Yeah, it's being in flow with someone, isn't it? It's that quantum entanglement.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well. If you if you bring up quantum again, I'm going to get into like an argument with you about it. So let's okay, not do that. Okay, we let's can not, have
1: an argument another time. Another um, time. Let's not do okay. that one. <laughs> so uh, next keyword.
2: Tree communicator. Uh, there's there's three trees in uh, in the forest near me that with whom I have had a ten year relationship, uh, and I hope to go there again this Saturday. It'll be cold, but I want to get there. Uh, And we, I walk up and put, find my place among them and we connect and it feels so good being with them. It's something like a dance and we communicate with each other. uh, And it's uh, something I want I want to encourage other people to recognize that they can do that. These, the trees have not all of them, some of them, I don't know which ones, but these do. Have the ability to be what we might call conscious and communicate telepathically with us, and these trees tend to like me to sing to them. So I stand there and sing to them. Uh, but they have particular songs that they like. And how do you know that I know they like those songs? That's another story. But uh, let's say I've tested that out a bunch of times, and um, they're we're having a conversation.
1: Mm. So, no, I won't I won't go there now because it'll get us into a whole other conversation, but check out the music of the plants and the devices that you can attach to plants and have them sing back to you. Uh, yeah. You might enjoy that. Yeah. Um, okay. What keywords do we have left?
2: Two of them. Recovering academic, <laughs> um, which means I'm a recovering academic, which means I've been in school since I was like five, uh, and uh, I've been out of school now for like uh, ten years. But uh, you can take the the boy out of academia, but you can't take academia out of the boy. So I still think academically, and that means that I talk to other people about many of these ideas. But finally, I've run across another psychiatrist who writes about stuff like this: coincidences and consciousness, and I feel relieved that I found somebody who's going to be on my podcast tomorrow uh, who thinks like me because of her education. She went to Stanford, went to Yale. Uh, So we have some educational experiences in common and we have some ideas in common and it's so so good because I want to do some research in figuring out stuff. And one of the things I just read in her book is that each of us has a a signature, a resonant signature that we vibrate at, at our own rate, our own frequency, much like we have our own fingerprints.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we have these. And I use, I, I, I came up with that on my own kind of uh, watching things, which he's got a reference. And that helps me think more clearly about how telepathy works. Because I wrote about a model for telepathy in my book that isn't quantum. Uh, it's it's a lot more down-to-earth because quantum, for me, is gets to a kind of mysticism that I can't understand. It's just a, a placeholder, I think, for ideas and information that we can get in a more basic scientific way. But that's just my opinion of it. And I'm trying to do that with this idea of, of psychosphere, our mental atmosphere.
1: Isn't every... Title, description, a placeholder? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so what's the last keyword?
2: Please allow me to introduce myself. <laughs> I'm a man of stealth and fate. I've been around a long, long year, changing the course of history. Pleased to meet you, Sandy. I'm Dr. Coincidence. Dr. Coincidence is the last one. Mm.
1: Yeah, and we know why. And so know very why. quickly before we close, tell us a little bit about the Coincidence Project. What you might be looking for that maybe our uh, viewers could participate in.
2: Oh yeah, um, the the Coincidence Project uh, website is going to get going uh, just in a week or so, or less than that. And we ha- and you can just put the project dot net into your web browser, and you can find us. And that website will encourage you to come to the coincidence cafe where we encourage each other to tell each other coincidence stories, because one of the key visions of a coincidence story is to encourage people to tell each other coincidence stories. So that's the cafe is set up on zoom to be able to do that. Meets on Saturdays from 11 to 1230 Eastern time. And if you contact me or, right now through my website i can get you on the list if you ask about it uh and ask me to do it and we can send you an invitation to the next uh coincidence cafe
1: put my name on that list
2: uh, i just need your email um and i almost now i know how to spell your last name so uh sedge beer but is it at at what gmail.com or something
1: I'll I'll email it to you.
2: Okay, okay. I will get that. And I'll be glad to put you on the list because it would be wonderful to have you involved.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'd enjoy that. Dr. Bernard Brightman, uh, there's a lot more we could have talked about, but I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time. Thank you for adding your 10 best list to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's library of recommendations.
2: You're very welcome.
1: It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd like to hear more from you as you didn't have to do on this. I hope we have a conversation <laughs> the next time because you got some good stuff in there, too. I know it. Uh, <laughs> so it's not just about me, you know, it's about us. So yeah. I, I look forward to uh, our talking again in the future.
1: Yeah, I'll be in touch. Okay, so meaningful coincidences, how and why synchronicity and serendipity happen. Is published uh, by Park Street Press. And you can learn more about Bernard Weitman's work, books, and his podcast at coincider.com. Correct?
2: And there's, a co- there's the cover of the book back there.
1: Yeah, there it is. That's it for this week. Uh, we've come to the end of the show. And uh, I'll be back at the same time next week with another edition of the No BS Spiritual Club's 10 best spiritual books series. Till then, it's goodbye from me and thank you to Dr. Bernard Biteman.
2: Thank you, Sandy. A pleasure (laughs) of being with you.
1: Likewise.